I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. In our exposition of 1 Peter, we find ourselves midway through chapter 3. We find ourselves right here at verses 10 through 12. I want to begin this morning by reading the passage for you this morning. 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now these words, Peter introduces us this morning to our subject. Our subject this morning is the good life. It's our subject last week as well. It's our subject this morning. You can see it right there, the first phrase of verse 10. For the one who desires life to love and see good days. It's the good life he's talking about. Peter says, do you want to live the good life? Now you think about the people to whom Peter is writing. He's writing to people who are facing difficult days. They are experiencing various trials, chapter 1, verse 6. They are experiencing slander from the Gentiles, chapter 2, verse 12. They are under an oppressive government. They are facing difficulties in the work environment, facing hardship even within their own families, suffering in the flesh is what Peter says in chapter 4, verse 1. They are reviled for the name of Christ and they are suffering in the name of Christ as a Christian. (laughs) Are these people living the good life? Well, Peter then says the one who desires to live the good life can do this. You can have the good life even through those things. Now, for us in America, it it just doesn't compute. For us in America, we think living the good life is having financial security or having all the toys in the world to occupy all of our time in our own pleasures. Or we think that when we have the stable job that provides for an opportunity to spend weekends at the lake, that's the good life. We think of a life of ease being the good life. That's what we think. That's not the good life that Peter's talking about here. Peter isn't talking about getting away from your trials and getting away from the hardships of life. Listen, the longer you live, the more you realize that life is difficult and life is hard and it's filled with troubles and toils and difficulties. Job says, a man is born for troubles as the spark flies upwards. What we're born to. That's life. But, but the good life can be had by, by living through those in a, in a right way. The good life isn't found by getting away from your trials. Rather, good life exists when you have the favor of God upon your life so that you're saved through your trials. That's the good life. Look at verse 12. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears attend toward their prayer. The righteous is all that he's talking about in verses 10 and 11. And God's eyes will look upon the righteous. His ears will attend to their prayer. And that's the good life, to have the life of God's favor upon your life. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. See, the good life doesn't merely come when you receive blessings of the world. The good life comes when you are sustained through those troubles by the Word of God. I heard a man say something to this effect this week. 
This isn't his exact words, but it's something like that. He says, the trials I've experienced in the last few years, I would wish upon nobody. But he said, the lessons that I've learned from the Lord through those times, I wouldn't trade for all the riches in the world. You see that? And and what it says, that even though the difficulties were great, he knew the good life and God sustaining him through that. And I heard him later then talk about, in this message, I heard him preach. He he said... um, Oftentimes, the, the nearness of God that I experienced at those points was so great that oftentimes I've prayed, God, let me see that experience again. Let me experience the nearness of You again. Because it is the times where things are really hard that oftentimes we draw closest to the Lord. That's where the good life is found. Not in the pleasures of life, but rather in the sustaining hand of God through the difficulties of life. Now, Peter's message here happens to be the exact message of David in Psalm 34. In fact, if you can probably tell from your Bible, the three verses I read are a direct quotation from the Old Testament. I'm not sure how your your Bible is. Maybe it indents it, or maybe, like in mine, it's in all caps. It says, oh, that's an Old Testament quotation. Everything in this passage, what I read, is Old Testament quotation, except for the first word, for, which is explaining. Everything else is in the Old Testament. So it really calls us to go back to Psalm 34. So I would have you to open your Bibles to Psalm 34. This morning, this sets the context of these words. And it is amazing that the message of Psalm 34 is the message of 1 Peter. Um, In fact, one person even said, D.A. Carson, I I read him this week. He said that, uh, I'm I'm not going to get his quote right, but he said something to the effect that Christian ethics in time of difficulty come from Psalm 34. And David relied heavily on Psalm 34. Uh, one, one writer even counted eight different times did, did Peter's letter reference or allude to what was found here in Psalm 34. So with that, I just say that Psalm 34 is worthy of taking our time this morning. It will take about half our time this morning and then we'll get into First Peter as we dig into his verses. So Psalm 34 begins with a superscription which describes the historical context of Psalm 34, the circumstances surrounding David's writing of the psalm. And it says this, A psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. Now suddenly, this then takes us back in David's life. Gives us some historical context of when it was that he wrote Psalm 34. These are recorded for us in 1 Samuel 21. So, I encourage you to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 21. I hope you see we're just piling these things. We're going to get there, all right? But they're calling us back and calling us back and calling us back. And we will, we will get to Psalm 34 and then we will get to 1 Peter. 1 Samuel 21 finds Peter on the run. He's fleeing from Saul who wants to kill him. He's leaving his close companion, Jonathan, his best friend in the world. Without any protection, he has no armor, no bodyguards to protect him. He's without food. He comes to Nob. As you can see there in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 21, where he encountered a friend of his, a priest named Ahimelech. And as David was hungry, he asked the priest for some food. Ahimelech gave him the sacred bread. It's a different story for a different time. But we pick it up here in verse 8. Got bread in one hand. He's ready to go. And David said to Ahimelech, Now... Is there not a spear or a sword on hand? For I brought 
neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's matter was urgent. And then the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you would take it for yourself, take it, for there is no other except it here. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. David was familiar with this sword. It's the very sword that he used to kill Goliath with. And it just happened to be there. Maybe it was on display. Maybe it was a religious relic. I'm not exactly sure, but it was there. He takes the sword. At this point, David then leaves. And verse 10 says, Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Now, you just need to catch what David did here. He flees Saul because there's danger of Saul killing him. And he goes to Gath. Do you remember whose hometown Gath was? It's Goliath's hometown. And what's he carrying with him? Goliath's sword. And does he have anybody with him? He's got nobody with him. Nobody to protect. I mean, this is enemy territory. This is the Philistines. The, the Philistines and the Israelites were always fighting during David's reign. The Philistines were by the shore, right where Gath is. Uh, Jerusalem was up in the mountains. And then they, they fought for the Shephelah, the, the hill country in between. And sometimes Israel owned it and sometimes the Philistines owned it. And he's going out of the frying pan, into the fire, into Gath, carrying Goliath's sword. And David says, oops, do you ever want to get away? That's what it's like. He wants to get away. And they recognized David. Said the servants of Achish. Said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David, realizing what's taking place, took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath, David knew he was in great danger. He was public enemy number one come into town. Think about Osama bin Laden having problems there in Afghanistan. Some whatever, some uprisings and you know maybe second guy in Al-Qaeda wants to get Osama. So Osama leaves and he gets on a plane and comes to New York City and finds himself at ground zero. And then the people in New York start saying, is this not the guy who masterminded the terrorist attacks of 9-11? And uh, what do you think Osama's face would look like? He's big trouble. And that's exactly what David has come to the heart of enemy territory, carrying the smoking gun. And his escape was ingenious. Look at verse 13. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely at their hands. And scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. Children, I don't suggest that you do this next time you've done something wrong and your parents are coming to discipline you. Right? Don't do this. You don't have a beard. Okay? It's not going to work. Saliva running down your beard. It's not going to work. All right? 
And this is typical. You know, when you look at the Old Testament, you need to be really careful to say what they did in the Old Testament, what you ought to do. We ought not to do this. All right? But David feigned madness. He's, he's refusing to swallow his saliva. It's dripping down his beard. He's scribbling on the walls of Jerusalem. Maybe he's kind of crawling on them, just writing, scratching on them. I can imagine his mouth is, is uttering, feigning oh, madness. I can imagine his eyes are just kind of wandering about. I mentioned he's west up his hair and torn his clothes a little bit, kind of walking about, and his performance won an Oscar. If you look at verse 14, Achish, who's also probably called Abimelech, said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman? Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? Now, for some reason, the Lord turn the heart of the king like channels of water so as to preserve David. Achish could easily have destroyed him in a moment. Here's Goliath. Here's public enemy number one. David, he killed our star Goliath. Have him be killed. Kings back then thought nothing of that. No political process needed to take place. No long-term trial. They could have just put him to death his word. But by God's grace, he was saved. He was rescued. And David departed. Chapter 22, verse 1 and escaped to the cave of Adullam, where he soon after joined with some of his companions. And it was in the cave, probably, that he wrote Psalm 34. And so, we can turn back to Psalm 34. I'm not going to spend a a lot of time here, but I want to just do maybe an interpretive read through Psalm 34. The psalm begins with David's determination to worship and praise the Lord. He says... I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. Here David had just been delivered from the hand of Achish. And now he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. He just committed to say, I'm going to worship Him and praise Him forever. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. And in His worship, wanted to have... Other, an effect upon others. He says, the humble will hear it and rejoice. Those who likewise were oppressed and have found their salvation in God will rejoice as well. And then he desires to be joined with the throng. He says in verse 3, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. <clears throat> now what's so encouraging about verses 1-3 through three is the circumstances surrounding it. David had been in great danger. He'd been delivered. And when, whenever you're delivered from great danger, it turns into worship. That's what it's about. David explains how he was delivered. Verse 4, I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to Him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and rescues them. Think about it. Why is it that David worshipped God so much? Because God had delivered him out of his trials. And and you know what? We worship Christ for the same reasons. Because the cross of Christ is a thing that has delivered us out of our trials as well. You want to be stimulating the worship of God? Think much upon, reflect upon the cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Realize that, that it was there that He saved you from your sin. Which is far worse than David's predicament before Abimelech. 
And, and then when you see that and you come to believe that and come to embrace that, you will have a heart to say, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. And if that's not your heart, that's not your praise, it's because probably maybe you haven't been delivered from your sin. But when you're delivered, that's the response. to Say, God, I thank you that you've rescued me from my sin. My sin is no longer a burden on me. It is rolled off the back and now I worship you. I want to make my boast solely in you. That's why we worship. That's why we come here this morning. If that's not your heart, I just encourage you to call upon the Lord. Maybe, maybe your heart even this morning just says, you know, I, I'm believing and trusting in Christ, but I just, I just don't find the joy you're talking of, Steve. Maybe there's some difficulties you're facing. Find it hard to worship the Lord. Well, my counsel and advice is still the same, right? Reflect upon Christ. Realize your salvation is there. But also I say this, take heart, because David turns from a worshiper in verses 1 through 3 to a, a teacher of us, of how it is that we can have this joy even in our trials. David's teaching us how we can rejoice through our troubles. Right there, verse 8, he says to us now, here's the teaching, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you as saints, for to those who fear Him there is no want. He says, just try Him. Just try the Lord. Just taste Him. And when you taste the Lord, you will see that He is good. You will see that He is one that you desire. What a great picture of those who, who trust in tribulation, distress, and trials, and persecutions all await the child of God. I mean, look over in verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. A belief and trust in Christ isn't going to deliver you from all of your trials and difficulties. It's not the case at all. But, but you're going to have those... I'm sorry, maybe I said that wrong. If you believe and trust in Christ, not that those things aren't going to be there. It's going to, they're going to be there and He's going to deliver you out of them. And He's going to deliver you through them. To take refuge in the Lord is what verse 8 says. And fear Him is what verse 9 says. Why? Because He's good. Those who fear Him, to those who fear Him, there's no want. If you fear Him, He'll supply for you. You won't be in want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He will help you and guide you. I love the illustration then of verse 10. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. We think of lions. We know what lions are, right? They're the king of the forest. Who the lions are. They're the top of the food chain. They're the ones that dictate what happens in the forest. They're the strongest, the mightiest of animals, and they can go after and eat whatever they want. And the young lions, they're the strongest, the most able, the swiftest, the fastest, those that don't get tired. But even the strongest of lions at times face hunger when their prey somehow slips away. There's a time of drought and they can't find their prey. But the contrast is the one who seeks the Lord will never lack any good thing. In verse 11, David then explains how the fear of the Lord expresses itself. He said, Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Come, you children, listen to me, I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. So you want to fear the Lord? You want to know about the fear of the Lord? Come, listen to me, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to tell you about the fear of the Lord. You want to experience a good life? Fear the Lord. Here's how to experience a good life. Verse 12. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? 
Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. There it is, 1 Peter 3, 10-12, taken right there. And eventually, we'll dig into those words more deeply. But I just want to kind of survey Psalm 34 here. But suffice it to say that David exhorts his listeners to a righteous life. Be righteous in what you say. Be righteous in what you do. Be righteous in your relationship. And that is the key to the good life. It's a call here to purity. It's a call here to purity with what you say. Call your purity what you do. Call here to purity among the people of God. Each of David's exhortations are a testimony, an exhortation to righteousness. Now, lest you misunderstand, I don't think you will, but lest you misunderstand, David is not here saying that keeping your tongue from evil and departing from evil and do good and seeking peace and pursuing in any way earns your salvation. It's not what he's saying. I need to think about Peter. That's not Peter's salvation. You think about David. That's not David's message. All right? It's not what it is. But, but what it says here is that, is that you're saved, you're trusting Him, but continue then to walk in His ways. And if you as a Christian, as a believer in Christ, continue to walk in His ways, you'll know the blessing of God upon your life in preserving you through trials. But if you stray from that, He's going to have His hand against you. So know that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that doesn't mean that you live whatever way you want. You live whatever way you want. You live in the sinfulness of the world going to come upon you. It's going to come upon you. But I promise you, if you live in a way that pleases the Lord, you will never be ashamed, you'll never lack, and you'll never be desirous of anything else. When you find God to be your portion, God to be your delight, you'll truly be satisfied. When the difficulties come, the righteous will live to see another day. You want to have length of days? Walk this way, but not so the wicked. Look what it says in the last half of verse 16, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The wicked may escape today, and they may escape tomorrow, but there's a day when their memory will be wiped off out of the earth. I remember a, a friend of mine, I guess, I was in college, a freshman in college, played basketball with this man, and um, he was a wild man. Self-professed wild man. In fact, I found out years later that this guy told one of his high school friends, if I live past age 25, I'll be pretty surprised, is what he said. He um, just lived for the weekend, drank much alcohol. I'm not sure everything else he was involved in, involved in sex, girls, just living the good life. And uh, I knew him my freshman year, played basketball on the same team with him. And then the fall, it came to be um, New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve, he got snockered, stoned out of his mind, and he went somehow, I don't know the details, ran a, ran a stop sign, was plowed over by a truck. That's what happens to wicked people. They cut off the memory of them from the earth. I guess we're remembering him today, but wiped out some 20 years ago. Because he knew his life was going to be like that. Because he was walking away from God. That was his own testimony. The Lord slew him. Well, the promise for the righteous, though, of deliverance comes here in verse 17. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. 
The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The picture here is of the, the people of God who are experiencing troubles and difficulties and they're crying to the Lord. And God is helping him through. See, the righteous aren't protected from troubles and hardship, difficulties of life. They will come. But the righteous are protected through the troubles and hardship and difficulties of life. And they're protected as they, as they see the trouble they're in, as they cry to the Lord, the Lord delivers them. And particularly here, even God is near to the brokenhearted, those, those who are crushed in spirit, those who have a heart that's broken, that says, God, my life is a wreck. I need help. God, we come and help me. And those are the ones that God delights to see. We saw last week that God looks down. He, he looks down upon the humble and contrite of spirit. He looks down upon those who are broken. He looks down upon those who get on their knees, get on their face and plead before the Lord. And God delivers them. And then David concludes it perfectly, of course, because it's inspired word of God. But many are the afflictions of the righteous, verse 19, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of His servants. And none of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. That is Peter's theology, right? Isn't it? It's not that Christian life is free from trials. Rather, it's a Christian life will be brought through the trials victoriously. Or, as I've said many times, suffer now. And God will preserve you through your suffering and you will experience then glory later. That's the message of 1 Peter. That's the message of Psalm 34. That's why Psalm 34 is a foundational passage for Christian ethics, how to live. Well, it takes us back now to 1 Peter. We're going to drill down in these verses 12 through 16 of Psalm 34. Because they're found right here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Do you want to live the good life? Do you want to live the good life? Live a life of purity. That's what the exhortation is this morning. Well, Peter and David gives us four points of application here. We're just going to gear here towards application where he says, The one who desires life, to love and see good days. Here it is, number one, watch your speech. He must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. The point here is simply you need to watch what you say. Watch what comes out of your mouth. Peter says, don't allow evil to come out of your mouth. Don't allow deceitful things to come out of your mouth. And the Proverbs are packed with illustrations of the damage that tongues can do. It is unbelievable what a, a mighty weapon we have in this little muscle that sits and resides in our mouth. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. With the tongue, you can build people up and make them really live. With the tongue, you can destroy them. You can say things that can absolutely destroy other people. Parents, you can wound your children for a lifetime the things that you say to them. Church family, you can wound people with your words. I know because I've done it. I've wounded people with my sharp words before. And I know because I've experienced it before. There have been times I've been sitting in my computer, received an email, read it, and instantly started crying. Just crushed 
I would have said. Instantly to my knees, instantly crying, saying, God, help me. It's the power of words. I remember a time my wife was on the phone with someone. The words and the wrath and the anger came so strongly from the other side that upon hanging up the phone, she was shaking physically from the shock of the depths of the anger that came from the other side of the phone. Death and life and the power of the tongue. And I say with Peter, if you want to know the good life, keep those death words far from your mouth. Proverbs 18, verse 6. A fool's lips bring strife and his mouth calls for blows. So your tongue can bring contention and strife among people. You know, it's, it's a tongue that initiates the fights we have. Think about it. Do you ever remember junior high? Maybe some of you guys are in junior high. I know many of you are homeschooled, so you don't see this, but some of you aren't, and you're in the public schools. Uh, I remember it was about a weekly occasion. There was some big fight at school taking place. And today it's probably hourly, all right? I think the schools are different. But can you imagine? You know what I'm talking about? Some, some big fight. And, and how does it start? You think about how it starts. Something happened. The offended party lashes out at the other one. And what happens to the other party? They lash out back. And pretty soon they're, they're yelling back at each other. And then the punches come. It's not that the punches come first and the words follow. It's the words come first and then the punches follow. Can you imagine kids just standing there? And then they start talking and yelling at each other. That's not how it happens. They yell first and they get their anger going through their mouths and then they go after each other. And that's what Proverbs 18 verse 6 says. His mouth calls for blows. Think of the power of the tongue. You can destroy people with it. You can, you can start fights. Your words also will ensnare you. Proverbs 19.5 A false witness will not go unpunished and he who tells lies will not escape. When you speak falsely against another person, your sin will find you out. You're not going to escape from the lies that you tell. God has made the world in such a way that falsehood you speak goes out of your mouth a little bit like a boomerang. It's going to go. It's going to float around. It's going to go from one person to another person. It's going to come back at you. And it will come upon you. And it will harm you. Because the false witness will not go unpunished. And for your own good, church family, I just say, let good come out of your mouth. Let your mouth speak only what is good and right and honorable and edifying. Listen to Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Let no, there's no wiggle room in that. It's not, well, in public don't let any wholesome word, but talk, you can talk with your wife that way. Don't. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as good for edification. Speak only those things which will build each other up according to the need of the moment so you may give grace to those who are here. Let your mouth speak forth what's good and edifying. Keep your tongue from evil. Now, is that easy to do that? It's incredibly difficult. How easy is it for our tongues to speak evil? It's easy because our tongues are wild and reckless and dangerous. That's what our tongues are. James tells us, every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. James 3, 7 and 8. You can go to the zoo and see the most wildest and most ferocious of animals. You can see tigers. 
You can see grizzly bears. You can see elephants. You can see gorillas. You can see alligators, piranhas, wild boars. You can see snakes of all kinds, cobras, rattlesnakes, pythons, all encaged. But one animal that you will never see caged up in a zoo is the human tongue. It's not going to be there. Nobody has ever learned how to tame the tongue. And the reason is really simple because nobody has ever learned how to tame the human heart fully. Except for Jesus. He spoke never a wrong sinful word. And see, the the, the tongue is something that that though the muscle just stays in our, our mouth, there's this connection that goes down further back than that into our heart. And the tongue just just brings forth what's in the heart. It's the window to the heart is what the tongue is. And so what's in the heart comes out. So to tame the tongue, you need to tame the heart. And there's only one way to tame the heart. You need to give it to God. Confess your failures before the Lord. Repent of your sin and cry out to Him for help. You say, God, my heart is sinful. It is wretched. And I see it in the way that I speak. God, change my heart. Conform it to the image of Your Son. Help me stay away from gossip, O Lord. Help me refrain from speaking poorly of anyone. Help me to avoid complaining. Help me to insult nobody. God, help my mouth because I want to turn away my mouth from speaking evil and my lips from speaking lies. It's the only way you can do it. Tame your heart and then from there will come. It will always be a battle. But you want to live the good life? Your own preservation? Speak only what's good. Watch your speech. Well, second, here in verse 11a, you must turn away from evil and do good. Again, quoting from David. doesn't take much to explain this. Simple, straightforward. Describing the act of repentance. You walk in this way. You, evil's there. You turn away from that and you do good. What's bad, you shun and avoid. What's good, you embrace and you pursue after. You might easily think about this like a, a kickoff returner. A football game. Who avoids opposing tacklers. So you think about Devin Hester. How many of you guys know who Devin Hester is? All right, good. I asked my family this last night, and they're like, hmm, Devin Hester. Hmm, who? Who is he again? That's okay. You'll learn about him now. Number 23, back there, the kickoff to the Bears, and he catches the ball. He's a threat to go the whole way every time, right? He's got the ball, and he starts running this way, and he sees there are five opponents coming here, only three blockers. He says, that's a bad plan. So he tucks back this way, and he starts running this way. And then a guy tries to break his block going around the swing side. And so he turns and he, and he heads up front. And then pretty soon someone beat his, his block and he's right in front of him. So he, he jukes this way and then he goes this way. And the guy misses him here and he's coming this way. There's a guy reaching out like this. And so he's ducking down and then someone reaches at his feet and he, he hops up a little bit. And he's running along and someone grabs onto his hips and he just keeps running, keeps turning all of a sudden. Pay dirt. <laughs> he just keeps going all the way. Devin Hester turns away from the evil of the would-be tacklers and pursues after the good. That's what we're talking about here. That's what it means to turn away from evil and do good. Evil's all around us. It's beckoning to grab us, beckoning to tackle us, and beckoning to pull us down. It can come in many forms. It can come through your television. Evil can come by way of things that you read. Evil can come by the, the company that you keep. Bad company corrupts good morals. You, you want to you wanna be really around that temptation? Be with bad company. In, temptation can come by the Internet. Temptation can come by a form of another person trying to provoke you to a fight. It can come in the form of temptations when facing the difficulties of life. Right? You lose a customer at work. 
Your livelihood is dependent upon that and you lose that. Cause you to grumble, complain against God or, or you have to deal with your declining health. That's a temptation. That's an, an evil that's coming that's going to cause you maybe to doubt and complain against God. Or you're facing a wayward son or daughter. You're living with an unloving husband. All these are would-be tacklers that you need to just keep your legs churning. And though they're grabbing on you, keep your legs churning and go forth to the goal line. Find pay dirt at the other end. So you can spike that ball and says, yes, I've done good. You stay away from them. Shun them. Stiff arm them. Whatever it means. In the midst of all the evil, keep your goal in mind. Right? You need to head up field. It's not a matter of how long you stay away from evil because you turn away from evil and you do good. You don't just turn away from evil and stay neutral. Imagine Devin Hester. He catches the ball back there and then rather run this way, he starts running this way. Someone starts getting him and he, he starts running backwards. He starts going around and you know he's running and then finally he gets tackled about the five-yard line and he runs off the, the field and Lovey looks at him and says, Devin, what are you doing? He says, Coach, wasn't that great? They didn't tackle me for 20 seconds. I just steered clear of all that. Now that's no good, right? That's no good. You gotta turn away from evil and you gotta do the good. You gotta head right up field. See, God doesn't merely say you shall have no other gods before me. He says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. God doesn't merely say that you should make no contact with the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hibites, and the Jebusites and show no favor with them and don't intermingle with them and don't intermarry with them because they're evil and wicked. They'll draw your hearts away. I just say, just don't stay away from them, but He says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's always a turning away and turning from and turning to. That's the spirit of Paul's constant exhortation to put off the old man and put on the new not merely a matter of just shedding the old man. It's a matter of putting on the new man. You don't just take off your clothes and stand naked. You put on your new clothes. You walk in a right way. See, it's not good enough merely to refrain from speaking lies. You must speak truth with your neighbor. It's not good enough merely to refrain from stealing. You must turn around then and be a giver and give. It's not good enough to steer clear of conflicts with other people. You need to reach out and be kind and loving toward others. As Paul wrote succinctly in Romans 12, verse 9, Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. That's what we're called to do. You want to live the good life? This is a good life. Live righteously. Turn away from evil and do good. Watch your speech. Watch your actions. Thirdly, watch your relationships. comes here in the last half of verse 11. He must seek peace and pursue it. Now, Peter's not here talking about seeking peace with God. He's talking about being at peace with other people. The good life is being at peace with other people. But it's more than just living a life of peace. It's a, it's a seeking. It's a pursuing after that. There's an active flavor here about Peter's words. He's calling for you to be active in your relationship. Seeking peace. Pursuing peace. The idea here isn't that peace just happens. Rather, the idea is you go forward making efforts in your relationship to establish peace. It means you make the conversations. You seek to be with them. You seek to have peace. The idea is the same in Romans 14.9. Pursue, 14.19, pursue the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. And I know from experience, it's hard to experience peace. It's hard to pursue peace once there's been a breach in relationship. I, I know it's hard. I've experienced it firsthand. And I just tell you this, nothing stresses my life more than breach of relationship. Nothing does. Nothing, nothing does. 
when those issues come up, my wife and I, it tears me up. It tears me up. She draws me to approach her and talk with her, put my arm around her, cry with her, pray with her, and establish peace. Seek peace and pursue it. When I've had conflict with people, it's torn me up inside. And it's hard to pursue peace. It's hard. That's why Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who know this act of how it is to pursue peace. Because it's hard work. But those who make the effort to maintain, restore peace, and fracture relationships are blessed of the Lord. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who make peace. That's what Peter's saying here as well. The good life is a life of experiencing peace with others. You say, Steve, how, how do I do that? How can I watch my relationship? What are some practical things I can do? Well, I just direct you back to verses 8 and 9. It was Peter's practice. I mean, that was what I spent last week preaching about. Harmony. To sum up, all of you be harmonious. The good life, a call to harmony. That was my message title last week. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, look closely at that message. Right there on the Internet, you get it. It's probably in many of your email boxes. Get it, read it. Seven how-tos. Be harmonious. Be sympathetic. Be brotherly. Be kind-hearted. Be humble in spirit. Don't return evil for evil. Don't return insult for insult. That's a way to seek peace and pursue it. Another good list might be given in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Be loving. Be patient. Be kind. Don't seek your own. Don't be provoked. Don't take into account a wrong suffered. Bear all things. Believe all things. Hope all things. Endure all things. That's the path to peacemaking. At this point, I'll have you note um, that when you're not at peace with others, you ought to consider it your problem. It's not their problem. It's your problem. Consider it your problem. And sympathize with them. And be brotherly toward them. Have a kind heart. Do kind deeds toward them. Speak kind words to them. Be humble in all of your dealings. Repent of sin in front of them. Don't retaliate against them. Now, there may be times when you do this and there's still no peace. Well, in that case, Romans 12, verse 18 applies to you. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, so far as it depends upon me, so far as it depends upon Steve, I need to be at peace with all men. In that case, give it to God. Say, God, in the integrity of my heart before you, I've done everything I can do and it's before you. But still, you know what? Don't give up because there's still other things you can do. Maybe you don't have contact with a person. You can still do some other things. These are things I've done. If you have a severed relationship, you can still seek peace by seeking the one who can establish the peace. You can pray for them daily. God, I pray for this person. I pray for this person. I pray you to establish peace between us. You can fast over the situation. You can deny yourself a food and say, God, I... Here's this trouble. It's troubling me and I'm hungering and I'm just pleading before you. I'm on my face. God, help me. Help with this situation. You can do that. And you can resolve to speak kindly to others of those in conflict with you. Never paint them in a bad light. Always paint them in a good light. So maybe you get around to others that they don't think you're so bad. Watch your speech. Watch your actions. Watch your relationships. And finally, this morning... The culmination, the thing that drives it all is that God watches. God watches. Verse 12. 
For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the foundation of the good life. The only reason why we experience the good life is because the favor of the Lord is upon us. I mean, that's the point of the first two phrases, right? The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears attend to their prayer. Now, God sees everything. God knows everything. God hears everything. This isn't a message about the omniscience of God only goes to the righteous. This is a message about God's favor. God's favor comes upon the righteous. Those who are living a life of faith, Trusting God with the words, trusting God with their life, seeking peace among others. God looks down upon those people with favor. The eyes of the Lord are toward them. And, and, and when they pray, He's got His ear attentive to that. And He's answering their prayers because He's hearing them. On the contrary, when the wicked pray, God ignores their prayers. And when His eyes fall upon them, God's hand is against them. So the face of the Lord is against them. You don't want to face the face of the Lord when the face of the Lord is against you. You don't want that. So here's my final application to you all. If you don't get anything else, get this. Live your life with a heavenly gaze. Live your life with a heavenly gaze. And see the choices set before you for what they really are. There's often a choice when you live between... Good and evil. Between saying the evil and saying the good. And you need to see that it's not merely a matter of doing what I want to do versus doing what I should do. It's a matter of the blessing of God. If you do this action, the blessing of God will be upon your life. You live the good life. If you do this action, the curse of God will be upon your life. Now, see, they don't have those labels. In fact, if anyway, they're, they're labeled a bit differently. Think about evil. You know what evil's like? Evil's like um, men make breakfast, right? And uh, one of the things that I I made, all right, I didn't make it a lot, all right, but I made <laughs> cinnamon rolls, all right. Imagine. I send SR outside. I said, SR, get some mud wet. And he gets some mud wet. And he goes like this. I said, okay, put it inside a cinnamon roll. Do you know they're wrapped up like that? Kind of take this out like that. Put the mud ball in there and wrap it on with cinnamon rolls and place it before you. That's what sin looks like. It is a cinnamon roll wrapped mud ball. It looks really good. It's what we want to do. We think it's going to bring us happiness. And we eat into that thing Pretty soon we got mud in our mouth, and it is awful, and it is yucky. <clears throat> so look at things, a heavenly gaze. See how God sees them. We might see them and says, "Oh, do we want this cinnamon roll, or do we want a piece of whole wheat bread?" Now, do you guys like whole wheat bread? It's okay. All right, given the choice between cinnamon roll, whole wheat bread, we can choose <laughs> cinnamon roll every time. Uh, in fact, I had I had one of these cinnamon rolls that I made. I helped a little bit, okay? That I made, and last night I said, Yvonne, these are really good. I want to have another one, but I didn't. I wanted to share with you all because I wanted to love others as I love myself. So I, <laughs> I could have had this, and I, I didn't, but they're so good. 
And given a choice, that's what I want. But you know what? I don't mind whole wheat bread. It's all right. It's pretty good, right? I mean, you can eat it, and it's, it's not so bad. But, you know, it's not the first thing you're going to get. But think about what, what happens as you eat your cinnamon roll. First of all, you're going to get the mud in there. But second of all, your energy is just gone, and pretty soon it's in your belly. But the, but the whole wheat bread, I mean, that builds you. And that gives you, like, long-lasting energy. And that's really good for you. And you don't mind it so much. And that is exactly the case with the good and the evil. The good is not so hard to do. You know, it may not be maybe the thing we want to do at the moment. We might struggle with it a little bit, but it's good. And how many of you have done the right thing and done good things and said, oh, this is awful, I don't want to do it? It's not. You say, wheat bread, that tastes pretty good, especially if it's homemade. Wheat bread, that's pretty good. And as you eat that, then you see, oh, hey, that, that gives me health, that gives me vibrancy. That, that, was, that was much better in the end. That's the blessing of God. It's going to build you strong. Right? It's like meat and potatoes. These are vegetables. And you got to do that. That's the good. Don't choose your sugars. It looks sweet that you want. It's attractive to you. That calls and beckons and lures and entices you. But in the end, brings the curse of God. Get, eat those things which are good for you. And which, you know what? They're good. I mean, it's like one application. You know, it, it's often the quite chance that uh, when the good choice is set before you, it's not that you're so against it. But it's just like, you know what? That would be hard to do. Like maybe this afternoon you're thinking, boy, you know, I'm wiped out from this week. I'm exhausted. There's a flock this week, a home Bible study tonight. And you know what? It's 5 o'clock and I am wiped out. That's a good choice. You can say, you know what? I just can't come tonight. I'm just too wiped out. Here's my experience. Whenever I've made a choice like this, you know, I'm really tired, but I'm going to go. And I go to a thing like flock. I go to men's equippers or go to something like that. At the end, I always go away from it and says, that was good. I'm glad I went. My soul has been strengthened in the Lord. That's what it's about. That's making a good choice rather than tired. And that's how good choices are. Oftentimes, good choices are something you just got to get up and do. I got to write that note. I got to make that phone call. I got to, I got to speak that word of encouragement. I got to do that. And it's, it's kind of hard, but after you've done it, when you do it, you're, you're like, that was good. That was good. So I want to set before you the choices that you have before you as those that are evil see them from God's side. They look attractive from us, but in God's in the end, it's no good. But the good choice will be the, the life that's blessed. You want to live the good life? Eat the good food. All right, let's pray. Lord, I pray you simply take these words, press them into our hearts, apply them. We might be doers of the word rather than hearers only. I've tried to set before these people, Lord, you know the good life. And um, I've tried to stay true to your word. Tried to show the glories of Christ in the midst of it. That, um, God, there's blessings for the righteous and curses for the wicked. And ultimately, the blessing comes through faith in Christ. So help us to live lives of faith that choose the good. So help us in our words. Help us in our actions. Help us in our relationships. We might know your hand of blessing upon our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.